0: Um I was I thought I would start with a lovely parenthetical aside that comes I think in the essay on, on Svevo um which is not about svevo strictly it's about child analysis. You mentioned that child psychotherapists are very interested in the symptomatology of children, they're very interested in everything that goes wrong, and they take surprisingly little interest in what goes right, in what makes for good living, for ordinary happiness. And this struck me as a nice way of a kind of a, a modest, quiet encapsulation of the entire project of your work, which doesn't spend a lot of time dwelling on the on of, of psychosis, um, of melancholy, of perversion but is really interested in what psychoanalysis and literature can tell us about the kind of life that would be worth living. There is, I think, one problem that you return to again and again, um, appropriately enough, because it's about returning to a problem again and again, and that is stuckness, uh, a word that you also sometimes call um, uh, fixation, Um, and immobility. I might note in passing that fixation, of course, is is Freud's word for perversion. Uh, I'm not sure whether that matters or not. But there is an antidote to stuckness. Um, And the antidote to stuckness, I think, is the the word style. The word style is really, for me, the centre of the book. Um, And in some sense then the essay on Emerson was in a number of different ways a kind of centre of gravity for me in this book partly because I have something of your passion for Emerson um, but also because I I felt that in the intense kind of fire of the writing about Emerson um, you were conveying something of the urgency of style it's an essay called Emerson and The impossibilities of style. And style in that essay um, seems to be written against one of the most hideous of many sort of hideous anglophonic uh, sort of cultural truisms, uh, which is the formula style over substance. Um, In this essay, style is not only substantial. it is more than substantial. It's actually a matter of life and death. Um, It's uh, in the sense that it is the thing that can bring us to life um, and that we can run in fear from and therefore make ourselves profoundly unalive. So I wondered if we could start by you saying something about the conception of style in Emerson, but also... In Adam Phillips.
1: I think style is a very difficult thing to talk about, in a way. And what interests me about Emerson's view of style is it's linked, in my mind, with what Winnicott talks about as aliveness, what Boulders talks about as idiom. It's something to do with the idiosyncrasy, presumably initially, of a kind of psychobiological rhythm in oneself, let's say. And I think what interests me about Emerson is his suspicion of style in a very, very distinctive style. In other words, he is very often saying that the problem, I mean, the modern way of putting this is that we are told if we write, we need to find our voice. Well for Emerson this is a catastrophe finding your voice because once you've found your voice all you do is imitate your voice and so Emerson is interested in the idea of there being talking voice <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if go you're going or not can everybody hear at the back? Yeah. No. No, all right. All right,
2: One, two, three, four. Can you take
1: Oh no. <laughs> I mean, I will if you want me to, but does this not work now?
2: Um,
3: is this dead? Uh... <laughs> what is the surprise?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's that worse, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but... yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've obviously forgotten what I just said, so I'll, so I'll start again. Of course, I'm not starting again. Um, Emerson said in a famous essay that imitation is suicide. Now, this is a very extraordinary thing to say, especially for probably most of us in this room, because most, I think, people have some idea in psychoanalytic language that one of the ways in which we so-called develop is through identification. Well, Emerson's view of this, obviously being pre psychoanalytic, is that identification is actually the problem, not the solution to anything. Of course, there are psychoanalysts who believe this too. But what Emerson, I think, is getting at is that in the evolution of a style, he believes we should always go on evolving beyond ourselves. That the risk is always that one will get stuck in one's idiom or one's.
0: I I, I will keep stock still. Okay. (laughs)
2: Yes. <laughs>
1: can everybody hear
4: yeah. Yeah,
1: okay. I'm sorry this is like a Stockhausen concert <laughs> so, anyway then aside um, I'm just going to have to bring this question to a close we're going to have another question because otherwise I'm just going to sort of die of exhaustion here but basically Emerson's idea about style is that there's a risk, in a way, of finding yourself stuck in your own voice. So, Emerson has an idea, which is actually a very, very interesting and compelling one, which is to find a style that is always a transcending style, or an enhancing, or a going beyond it. So, this seemed to me, as a boy, to be a very, very, very interesting idea. Because the writers that I was beginning to love and like and read seemed to me to be very distinctively idiomatic. You could Immediately you would know a Dunn poem, a Herbert poem, an Orden poem, etc. Et and so this obviously fits in with certain ideas of, about individualism and originality and so on. Well, Emerson believes totally in originality, and he believes in a way only in originality. But originality means being as absolutely unlike anybody else as possible. Now, of course, everybody grows up in history, as Emerson knew. But Emerson's belief was, and of course it was historically situated like all beliefs, he has a phrase um, in one of the essays, I can't remember which one it is, where he says he refers to this new yet unapproachable America. Now, the implication of this comment is that actually nobody's even discovered America yet. There isn't a new world yet because nobody's actually got there because everything is derivative. Everything is either an imitation of European culture or reacting against it. So it's either a positive ideal or a negative ideal. And what Emerson is interested in is what development might be if it was neither, as it were, in agreement or disagreement. It was neither active nor reactive. And this seemed to me to be, I don't know why I thought this exactly, but this seemed to me to be a kind of a freedom or a liberation that you could be free, not only not to be like anybody else, but not to be like yourself. And of course, it's impossible. I mean, Emerson knew that too. But as a project, it's a very, very interesting one because it's a sort of impossible challenge. And that's the bit, I think,
0: that interested me. Um, You write in the essay that style is what the world hates about the writer, that is, on Emerson's view, and what the writer, out of fear, might resist in himself. And there's a nice ambiguity about that, because what the writer might resist is both a breaking out of the confines of the self and the voice that is all too familiar to him, but also he might fear self-imitation, because perhaps self-imitation has, some, I mean, self-imitation has something to do with signature. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where it gets quite knotty. Um Emerson is, I think, on that list of writers that you just described whose sentences are immediately identifiable as soon as you pick them up. Um, It's one of the pleasures of your writing that the signature is so immediately distinctive. Um, So writing is about the pleasure of cultivating and refining the voice that one already has, but it's also a matter of not becoming too pleased with it mm. and there doesn't seem to be I mean part of what you're saying is that there doesn't seem to be a program or manual or method um, to get yourself out of that, that bind. No and
1: there couldn't be one but I think in a way there's a link here with free association because you could think one way of construing this would be that free association also is the attempt to undo the knots in one's own idiom so to speak and that of course insofar as it's repetitive then something is stuck what Emerson is onto, I think, is the, is the refuge of repetition. Is, one's, is the temptation to repeat. Now, what I'm aware of when I write, it's not, a, it's not a claim, it's just an experience, which is that when I write, I'm not struggling to articulate something. I'm not trying to approximate or reiterate something that in some sense already exists in my mind. I'm, um, I'm just writing sentences as they come one sentence leading to another. So, like everybody in this room, of course, I could reconstruct a fiction about the unconscious and all that. But the experience is, I have nothing in my mind, then I have something in my mind. And in the writing of it, the freedom, and for me, the pleasure of writing, is the possibility one can surprise oneself. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, it could be stagey, you know, it could be faux surprise, it could be the wish to be surprised. But I'm struck that it's, in, one, in some ways, one of the most pleasurable ways of thinking Free association is potentially another. Not only pleasurable, but also pleasurable. Because you have the opportunity there to, in a sense, um, well, neither mock yourself, imitate yourself, take some kind of cynical refuge from yourself, but when it flows, something emerges. And it's always, when it works, not what you'd thought you thought. And there's something about that that is just, to me, wonderful.
2: Mm.
0: Mm. I want to just make a slightly kind of sideways link to the question of style, because style in this book is obviously predominantly uh, literary style, although that's always linked to questions of styles of being, to idioms. Um, But not very long ago last year, some of you may know, um, you curated uh, a show at the Barbican with Judith Clark um, called On Vulgarity, which was about a different kind of style, um, about Fashion and the freedom to forge the kind of style one would want to for oneself without um, w- without the whispers in one's ear of um, of, of, of you know the, the the judging the judge over the shoulder um, and well maybe you could just tell us a bit about that the experience of it and and what you feel it has to do with
1: well what was <clears throat> this is a show that was curated by my partner Judith and I did the text for it the basic idea behind the show was this that uh, vulgarity was something that people ascribed to other people broadly speaking and that in a sense um, ideas of so-called good taste depended on the capacity to identify vulgarity now one of the things about vulgarity to the people who use the word is they always know it when they see it so it's as though it's an unconscious state of conviction about taste and it clearly is a way of basically dismissing people and objects. Now, of course, this has an obvious psychoanalytic <clears throat> resonance, as in what you refuse, deny, trivialise, mock, etc., you have some affinity with, however, unconscious. So that was, the, that was the basic, simple, obvious psychoanalytic idea. The other interesting thing about the, the word is the history of it, because in the 17th century, the word vulgar simply means common. Uh, in common, as in shared in common by the 18th century it means common as in vulgar so by the 18th century there are more or less institutionalized standards of taste so there are the mass who are vulgar and then there are as it were a version of a ruling class aesthetic and um, aristocratic who own good taste and what's very important is that everybody knows the difference because otherwise there's going to be social mobility And one of the things that's clear through, if you look at clothes, I don't know anything about clothes, but Judith does. It's quite clear, if you look at the history of dress, the way in which dress, and one of the very things about dress is that dress designers are fantastically interesting historians. But obviously it's a different language. So the history of dress is in lots of dress in ways you have to know about in order to see it. What's clear is that um, a lot of contemporary dress designers um, are using ideas of vulgarity as critiques of taste or incorporating vul- so-called vulgarity into new forms of style and and it um, good taste so it was a sort of the anthropologist Mary Douglas talked about purity and danger dirt is matter out of order well vulgarity is the dirt in taste and so it was a way of re-describing that in different forms
0: there's a kind of paradoxical quality um, to vulgarity in this regard in in the sense that it might um, present a kind of um, aristocracy of style um, the in, in the sense that that the vulgar person is the one who has the courage mm-hmm. to forge his own voice and to in a way dismiss the vulgar. Um, scruples and and, uh, and and hesitations and timidity of the rest of the crowd.
1: yeah exactly and that's the, the point is that that to have the courage of your vulgarity is the thing because something's been overcoded as vulgar uh, before it's been thought about so the idea of, of this fixed idea about taste is that nobody thinks about it similarly I think in writing or certainly the writing that interests me you don't—it's not risk, as in risk with the capital R. But what certainly I can do in writing is—is is be the things I would rather not be, seen to be, as in brash, pretentious, grandiose, naive, etc. Um, not deliberately, but that it's inevitable that when you let yourself write or indeed speak, these things emerge. Now, I—I I would prefer to. Um, I would prefer to start on the assumption that we are equally naive and differently knowledgeable. And so you start from there. So that in in the actual writing I think I like writers who are, as you've said, willing to be or prepared to take the risk of being accused of something, so to speak. Not uh, deliberately provoking it, you may sometimes do that but that's not the main intention the main, the main intention is based on the assumption you don't actually know the value of your thought until you've said it and somebody else has responded to it, you don't know beforehand the value of your words that's the point of free association. so it's it would be a version of writing that cares about the aesthetics of it, I don't write daft things or Sentences that are to me rhythmically u- ugly or any of that stuff. I want to make the sentences sound as good as I can but not with a view to them being um, but with a view to not knowing quite whether they're any good or not. Mm-hmm. And often you f- I find what I take to be my best sentences are either my best sense or my worst sentences but it's worth uh, not knowing. If you couldn't know how would you know?
0: Mm. I was reminded as you were speaking about a line of Adorno's about Proust. He says that Bruce shows us very vividly how vulgar snobbery is. Um, and uh, w- what snobbery really is, is this anxiety um, over what other people think, kind of working away in us um, and corroding our, our creativity and our capacity for risk, so that one can become a snob towards one's own sentences. Yeah,
3: yeah exactly.
1: I mean, presumably, our word for snobbery would be omniscience.
0: So, so the other um, motif that recurs, again, in, in these essays, in other places in your writing, is... The quest for understanding. And again, there is a kind of risk-taking provocation, certainly within the world of of psychoanalysis, which has a tendency, or at least British psychoanalysis can often feel like it has a tendency to um, kind of enthrone understanding as an unquestioned good. And one of the things that you seem to be trying to do in the book is ask questions about what kind of understanding we want, but also... What relationship understanding has to, to misunderstand um, the, There's a, a lovely essay on uh, Italo Sveva's Zeno, which um, asks a question about um, what you might get out of an object by misunderstanding it. And again, could you, could you say a bit more about that?
1: There's a a tradition of aesthetics which people in this room may know about which in Britain anyway derives from Oscar Wilde and Pater and so on which is the idea of the value of creative misreading or misunderstanding that instead of trying to get it right so to speak you might be interested in getting it interestingly wrong Now what I think interests me about this is there's a An interview with the American poet John Ashbury, where the interviewer says to him, Why is your poetry so difficult? He says, I noticed that when you try and communicate with people, eventually they lose interest. If you talk to yourself, people want to listen in. (laughs) (laughs) Now, it seems to me, in um, the psychoanalysis that I was brought up in, so to speak, um, there was a huge emphasis on understanding, as though our wish in life, so to speak, was to be understood or to understand other people. Whereas it takes you sort of two seconds thought, three minutes of experience to you know this isn't actually the case, clearly, as a child, you need to have somebody who, in some sense, understands your need, is able to recognise it sufficiently. But you could think of growing up as growing up as the freedom to become either misunderstood or to drop the understanding project. Not everywhere, all the time, but in some areas of your life. Because it seems to me, for example, that in sexuality, understanding would be rather overrated, say, I'm um, verbal understanding. There are lots of areas of one's life where the attempt to be understood could itself be either a cover or a distraction. And so I think what I am and was interested in is what are we going to be doing with each other if we're not trying to understand each other? And what kind of relations or new kind of relationality would that make possible? Now, one of the, to me, great things about the Winnicott tradition, so to speak, in psychoanalysis, is that clearly it's not all about interpretation. It's not all about reconstruction, making sense. And Winnicott, the reason there's an essay in here on Edward Lear's Nonsense and, and Winnicott, is because Winnicott was very, very interested in nonsense, and he uses this in various papers and he seems to have an idea and put it like this but he has an idea of nonsense being a kind of idiomatic privacy and that some things about oneself may only take that form they may not take the form of shareable consensual understandings so I think what one of the things that may or may not come through in the book is a wish to think about the alternatives to understanding and the freedom Because people often say or complain that X doesn't understand them. And you could think, well, that is it It could itself be a problem. But the next question would be, and what are you hoping will happen? Or how will your life be different if they have understood you? You So what kind of utopian backdrops does this have? And also, clearly, there's a fear of being understood and there can be something very, very unimaginative about empathy. And so I'm interested in those alternative forms of sociability
0: When, when you made the, the link in passing to sex um, the word that suddenly came to my mind was rapport because rapport seems to me a form of relating which is creative and enlivening and doesn't necessarily have much to do with understanding yeah. um, rapport in sex or in friendship or God forbid, in psychoanalysis um, seems to have something to do with a, a, a a kind of meeting of minds which has very little to do with understanding anywhere as yeah. we ordinarily construe yeah. Yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and often happens in spite of understanding.
1: Oh. I think what psychoanalysts refer to as perversions are understandings. I mean, if you're in a, say, you're a masochistic contract with somebody, you both know what each other wants. Obviously, you couldn't do it otherwise. Well, I think that it was, it's useful to think of certain kinds of understandings as akin to the narrowing of one's mind in a sexually perverse act and that there are alternatives I mean, rapport with one, obviously anybody who's done infant observation or indeed has had children or been one knows that there is clearly a fantastically powerful rapport between babies, mothers other people, the world, etc which is pre-verbal and is clearly not based on understanding psychoanalysis seems to be based on the idea that understanding is maybe one of the most defensive things we do in relation to ourselves and other people. So I think the point is not to ditch understanding, but to afford a sense of where it's useful and where it isn't, where it can get us the lives we want, and where actually it might distract us.
0: It's interesting, in relation to Freud as well, because so often Freud is taken to task by a certain kind of liberationist discourse. As um, wanting to um, constrain sexuality and somehow being an enemy of the transgressive or, or, or the um, the risky um, in sexual life, and yet what I think you're saying is is that his understanding of perversion, as understanding of perversion, is is that um, it, it gets us stuck.
1: Yeah, it's a it's it's not that. It is, in, in and of itself, bad. I mean, you can see why some people could think that it was, and sometimes it might be. It's that it narrows a repertoire. Yeah. It's based on an anxiety about, as it were, a more open sexual experience. Oh. So if you can begin to evolve the idea that you know what turns you on, it's that you've solved a lot of problems. Perhaps you've created a whole lot of other problems which are worse, I think. And so, in a way, I think Freud, as you say... To me, it's extremely liberating because the language he gives you to think about those things. And just to have invented a therapy based on free association is astounding to mm-hmm. me because it's really unknowable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and of course, the risk is that it gets tied up too quickly. But, you know, for says, no less to Jones or somebody, why can't we just all go on free associating forever? And it's a good question. And of course, there's not an this answer to it. But nevertheless, it is a very interesting idea. That you know, what's the anxiety that means the free association has to stop, either be stopped by the so-called patient or stopped by the analyst in interpretation, and I think those are the kind of bits that interest me. Mm. Mm.
0: Um, There's a a kind of counter voice I I felt. I mean, I'm not sure if you see it like this, but in the essay on on Clough, um, there is a kind of encounter that you stage between Emerson's self-reliant self, which is um, endlessly self-renewing and endlessly risking itself and endlessly questioning the terms um, on, on which it operates. And so self-reliance can, you know, as an essay and as an idea, can often sound like a kind of... Um, a contempt for the very notion of the social, because the social is what gets in the way of, of this kind of self renewing mode of, of selfhood. And, and in, in Clough you find someone, you find a voice that is a bit wary or doubtful about this renewability of the self, and, and, and sort of offers this counterpoint of a self conditioned by history and by situation. Which again seems to me a tension that you're trying to work out in this essay. I mean, in in some sense, it feels fair for me to say that you are on the side of the Amazonian self, but also very alive to the ways we can then screen out these kind of cluffy and dark doubts.
1: I think I'm, um, I'm on the side of sociability. And what seems to me amazing is the incredible pleasure people can get from each other's company and therefore the incredible frustration people can feel with each other. Now what interests me about it's exactly as you say, in the Clough essay, is the Amour de Voyage, which is actually a wonderful poem if you're interested in reading long Victorian poems, is a poem really about a man a man's chronic self doubt but about sort of everything about himself, his capacity to love, his interest in things, etc. Et but what, what gets staged here is self-doubt self-doubt—a solipsism, really, that actually self-doubt becomes a way of sabotaging exchange with other people. And so this, this man, of course, finds himself more and more and more isolated. What Emerson can't do, I think, and William James can do, and Winnicott do even better, is actually give us a language for the ways in which the the whys and the wherefores of the way in which sociability is sabotaged and what the craving for sociability might be. Because clearly if we didn't have somewhere an experience of some sort of ecstasy or intense pleasure with each other we wouldn't feel our frustration so acutely. we just think, well that's just frustrating, it's the way it is. But actually everybody feels their frustration well, they only feel it because it's a deprivation of the pleasure they know something about, and it's not only wishful. And I think what Winnicott was onto here was the idea, I mean, it's in the word experience, which of course the word that Winnicott uses, William James uses, Freud doesn't use very much. But it's an idea that there are possibilities of exchange between people that are unprecedented. But we just don't know what's possible between people. And I think, you know, to my ears and eyes, Winnicott reads Freud in that kind of way Mm. not as a sort of revolutionary but there is a kind of tacit assumption that people can do things together they've never done before and that I think is sort of wonderful interesting
0: so what about um, the relationship of sociability to the immense value that is placed in Emerson Say and in Winnicott on solitude um also in relation to this Emerson's wonderful essay on friendship where the condition for real friendship for intimacy is distance and the curse of friendship is a kind of in one another's pockets anxiety that in a way can't risk the the deeper intimacy of, of distance of knowing that the other person is actually another person I think in
1: Winnicott, solitariness or solitude is the precondition for sociability. I think what Winnicott is very alert to is the way in which extrinsic demand from the environment forces upon a person the invention of selves that then manage the object. And then the solution becomes the problem. And Winnicott seems to believe in a kind, I think Emerson does in a different way, I think Emerson believes in original possibility. I think Winnicott believes in some kind of original love, of which, of course, hate is integral, but they're not in in conflict, I don't think, in the same way. I think Winnicott believes that in passionate loving there is hating, and that, you know, in the the way he describes it, that if the object survives that passionate loving and hating, then there is an object with whom one can have an exchange. Now, that seems to me to be about sociability, but I think it depends upon... The, you know, the capacity to be alone, as well. That the, the, there, there are freedoms. There are freedoms that can only be had in solitude. But I think, I mean, there's a very interesting interview where, in, um, where Elizabeth Rudinesco is asked, why did so many Jesuit priests go and see Lacan? Given, you know, he was. Mm-hmm. Like for normally too religious, and Rilke said the great thing about Lacombe was he had a tremendous regard for people's vocation, and I think it's a very interesting comment because what it suggests to me is that that he had some regard for whatever that person's um, basic bias, tropism, whatever it was in their life, and everything on, went ar- on around that, and I think that for Winnicott, it's as though There's a vocation for solitariness or solitude that then becomes sociability. But there's always a risk that we'll be distracted from our desire by our wish to meet the needs of the other person. And of course, that's always going to be an issue.
0: Yeah. Maybe I could bring that into dialogue with the question of clinical experience because presumably, like everyone in our profession, you've come to the end of a piece of clinical work and felt that it didn't quite go as you would have wanted it to. And and you have to take that into yourself and think about why that might be. Um, what does it have to do with what we're talking about, with um, the say of being original? Do, do you find that that is something that comes up as a reality in the consulting
1: Yeah, I mean I think there are two bits to this. One is discovering what the patient's idea of a cure would be. So there's that, which is the ongoing discovery of what it would be from that person's point of view to live better as themselves. And then there's all the brilliant ideas I've got about what a good life is. And there's a conversation and or an argument and an ongoing exchange about that. Um, my primary, I mean, I love the thing that Adler used to do in initial consultations where somebody would roll up, he'd see them, etc. And then he'd say to the person at the end of the consultation, what would you do if you were killed? And they say, and he said, well, go and do it then.
2: <laughs> well, that's, that's
1: my model um, in other words I'm very I think I'm interested in the person's unconscious repertoire of risks and the reasons for the risks not taken um, my criteria are for so-called cure would be something along the lines of somebody having found um, more freedom in relation to their real enjoyment and for some people, more friendliness, the capacity to enjoy, well, their own and other people's company. Um, but I would be more or less ambitious, depending on what I thought somebody wanted and was as we were capable of. But I don't, I'm not actually very, I'm not very interested in outcomes in a way. Yeah. I don't mean I don't care what hamster people; I do, but I don't, I think the point about an analysis is it's an anti-commodity. It guarantees nothing. You don't know if you buy a car. Obviously, there are things you're guaranteed. You buy an you're not guaranteed anything, except it seems to me the attentive listening of us yeah.
3: um,
1: and some genuine um, care for the person you see. But of course, you can't buy that. But anyway, you, you may be able to have it. Um, but I think that I think that it has to be taken on as a risk. You don't know what the consequences of it are, because how could anybody? Um, it may make your life worse or better, um, but it might make your life better by being worse as well. <laughs> as well. you might feel you might suffer more but feel realer in some sense. Um, but I think that there are as many outcomes as there are people in one sense, but I think we should have very good ideas about what we want for our patients.
0: Yes, because I dislike the word outcomes as well because it, it suggests that there is a kind of external metric against one, which one could measure um, what's happened in, in the work. On the other hand, there is something different, which is the maybe quite inchoate feeling that something hasn't quite felt right and that the person hasn't necessarily gone away feeling realer or, or more alive.
1: Yeah, and, and it's inevitably dismaying. I also think that part of doing it is a sense of one's limitations, or the limitations of it, mm. or the limitations of what can go on between two people as well. I mean, I think it's a bit like with... The, I mean, it's, it's not a good analogy, but it's a bit like with one's children, in the sense of, it seems to me, you, I do want to have a sense of their potential selves. I do think of myself as the guardian of what they might or could be. I'm also aware that they are out of my orbit, at another level, um, and that ultimately I'm not going to be able to make their lives. I can facilitate certain things, but I know that parenting is isn't aesthetic. You, Some things you say to them are beautiful and some things you say to them aren't. Yeah. And they know this, of course. And that's the conflict. But, but within that context, I think it's good to have a few good ideas about what a good life is. Yeah. Not... Um, Convictions, but ideas. You do,
0: you do raise the question obliquely about why parenting has become such a, a, a kind of a dominant and dominating mm. model mm. for the clinical encounter.
1: I've always been baffled by this. I mean, obviously not baffled in one sense, because it's obvious, but um, I can. When you said that, I was reminded of when I trained um, there was a meeting between the students mm. and the teachers, and we were asked to give our suggestions of what we'd like to be taught, and we made the suggestions, and then the panel said, well, we'll do this, this and this, and not that, that and that, and somebody questioned this, and one person on the panel said, you know, the children can't bring themselves up. Well, I actually was a child then, but some of my other colleagues were sort of, in their thirties and forties, had children. What was astounding to me when I trained was this the model if you so sort I of mean
2: mm.
1: of the sort of bourgeois family and the assumption about an authority structure and I think that there as long as you know it's an analogy mm. that that's what it is so it's a regular to fiction but you know on the one on one hand it's like from David Cooper said, so, you know we want fewer mothers and fathers and more mothering and fathering well. I actually want more mothers and fathers and more mothering and fathering. But within that context, there are ways in which, if somebody entrusts themselves to us, given what we do, you have to look after them. And they were children, as we were ourselves, and it it really does matter.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, After so many years in the profession... Do you find when someone new comes to you that you still have these moments of being absolutely awed, really, at the privilege and and a bit frightened at the privilege they're they're giving you?
1: Um, In a way, yes. In a way, no. I mean, I feel like it is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing that somebody would come and talk to somebody else as freely as they're able. That is an amazing thing. Um... But it gives me a very powerful feeling of solidarity, so that I feel like, I don't feel this all the time, with everybody all the time, but these are conversations I really love having and want to have, mm. and they give me a feeling of solidarity. I feel that we are involved in a shared project, and it's the collaboration. It seems to me, in a way, it's like an opportunity to evolve collaboration. That's what you learn and else if it's good, yeah. is how to collaborate with somebody. And that means not needing to be right, not taking flight into inner superiority, not retaliating, all those things. That if you take them out of the social mix, then people are different. They're not completely different, but they're different.
0: I'm just going to push you a bit further on this, because the model of collaboration that you just described could, could be described as quite a classical one, yeah. quite a Freudian one, yeah. and um, is is different from the ways that collaboration is sometimes talked talked about, for example, in sort of contemporary American psychoanalytic circles.
1: I mean, I lo- I also love ego psychology, you see it Yeah. Me. I mean, for me, it's much more a question of individual voices than of schools, really. Mm. But I I think it's a very very interesting project, the analysing of defences. Mm. Um, I don't think it's the only game in town, but it is a very very to me integral part of what. Is worth doing which Mm. is really I mean my sort of my sense of it is you're trying to work out what's stopping you enjoying each other's company that doesn't mean pleasing each other exactly but feeling that the company's worth having Mm. and so all the ways in which one is warding off exchange those are worth knowing about if you're interested in that so I think that you know the great thing about doing psychoanalysis now is there's so much of it
2: Mm.
1: so you can find the voices that you like Mm. And not bother with the ones who don't. But by now there are several generation of people who've thought about this stuff and have wanted to go on re-describing it, and
0: that's sort of wonderful. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting the point you make also about individual voices over schools, because one of the, I think one of the difficulties of psychoanalytic training is that it tends to railroad yeah. its students yeah. into affiliation to schools, yeah. and 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 voices cut across schools in a way that, 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 that gets lost in that in that uh, group model in that affiliated model Yeah.
1: I mean I think I don't know if it's still true but I think to do a secondary training you need a very good full self so that you can work out the people you need to manage and the people who you know have got something to teach you mm.
2: <laughs> and, and you, know, you always know who's got something to teach you
1: and, and that then frees you, by the same token, to work out which psychonic writers, if you haven't like reading, you like, and which don't work for you. Now, of course, it may be interesting to find out whether and if you're resisting them, but in my experience, it wasn't very interesting, actually. There are very few, it's been true of other kind of writers, but psychonic writers, I never felt, if only I worked a bit harder with X...
2: I would enjoy it
1: more. I always found I could tell, as with the novel in the first five sentences, whether this voice was good or not for me. Mm. And so we didn't have to have an argument about whether you know Margaret Marlowe was better than Anna Freud. You could just say this I'm moved by this, it really engages me. Mm. But you wouldn't be involved in a persuasion game. You know, along the lines of, you know, is aromatherapy better than psychoanalysis mm-hmm. It really doesn't matter. Mm. All that matters is you find the bits of whatever it is that actually engage you. Mm.
0: Mm. Um, I want to pick up on the shortest, but a, a very compressed little piece in here, um, called uh, Hamlet, Hamlet's Revenge, or uh, uh, I don't
1: remember. I think it's called Hamlet for Revenge.
2: Hamlet Is it?
0: for Revenge. That's yeah. right. Hamlet for Revenge. Um, it's a very powerful, compressed meditation on the idea of revenge, using Hamlet really as a jumping-off point, but but. To, to think about what we mean by revenge and what place it has in our psychic life and, and maybe in our cultural life. Um, and there's this line in it. Um, you're not quite speaking, um, certainly not sort of stating a position here, so I have to be careful. You're in a way of a certain point of view, but you say, if you live without foundations, without any core cool beliefs, you don't have you don't think of yourself as having much or anything to vindicate. So revenge, as I understand it, is an attestation to the fact that you do have something to vindicate. That something matters matters enough that you will kill and destroy for it, and even violate your own values mm. for it. Um, now I'm going to make, because we're coming towards the end, I'm going to make a sort of slightly off the wall association about living without foundations, without any core beliefs because it seems to speak really to our current political moment um, to our era of fake news to the great triumvirate of Trump and Putin and Brexit but of an authoritarianism that creeps in a different kind of revenge that creeps in when um, you don't think of yourself as having much to vindicate, but the problem with with not being vengeful, if you like, with not having the spirit of vengefulness, with being sufficiently sceptical that you don't have anything that you would kill for, is that, that other forces can can creep in and um, and and take over the, the culture um, and the world in the absence. Sorry. Okay. magic <laughs> Right. In, in the absence of, of, of core beliefs
1: I, I mean it seems to me there is fundamentalist neoliberalism and there's fundamentalist liberalism I think it's very difficult to sort this out because on the one hand it's very difficult especially for us, there is an us in this room to imagine a life without core beliefs I think the question is what, how core beliefs are used really and how core core is because obviously, in one sense, there's an infinite regress in this, because you have to wonder what is at the core of the core. But, but I still think there is. I think it's interesting to imagine what it would be like, um, what a life would be like lived without revenge, and what you would then have to believe or not believe in order to do that, and how much a life lived without revenge is a life a self betrayal potentially, or the opposite. Right. So, I mean, one of the to me one of the very very interesting things about your book on the private life is, that, is the idea that private life is private to oneself as well and it seems to me that that's, psychoanalysis gives us a sort of language and partly sort of, the way you've described it to think about that and I think what interests me the reason I think psychoanalysis and American pragmatism should, should be put together is because one is an essentialism and one isn't and then you can see what's possible you know, if we don't um, accept the idea that, for example, our lives are a war between the destinies of the life instinct and the death instinct, we we're living in a completely different world. So the question would be, what have we lost in believing now? of course, you could lose something believing in anything. But I think that the essentialisms, by telling us where we start from, tell us where we can get to. It doesn't mean, therefore, they should be ditched. But I just think there might be ways of thinking about these things that are not too hemmed in. And I think the reason revenge, I think, is interesting to me is because, it, and I think I say this, I can't remember, but I think I say this in the essay, which is that when you're moved to take revenge, it's as though you know exactly what's happened to you and you know exactly what to do. It answers both those questions immediately. Mm. Well, you don't know what's happened to you and you don't know what to do in actuality. And so it's like, even though this is rather dispassionate way of saying, it, it's like pause for thought. That you could have a second thought when you're moved to take revenge, and the second thought could be interesting. It could just be an evasion of aggression, but it could be interesting.
0: Um, I could go along, go on a lot longer, but we're we've just coming short of an hour, and I know that there are a lot of people in this room, and you will have a lot of uh, questions that you want to ask, points that you want to make, questions. You want to raise for discussion, so shall we get started? Pause for thought.
1: Do feel free not to speak. Is there a road in
2: mine? No. <coughs> Hello. Can you hear me?
1: Yes. Can't see you. Ah. I
2: was trying to write a poem on the way here. You know, about the things that happened um, coming here. It didn't turn out at all as I thought it would. You know. I um, have two daughters and if I have to get them to say to do something or go on a journey I say, treat it like a poet you know, it might be nice, you know, with nice colours and stuff um, but, but it all went wrong today for me and in fact like I got lost um, so, um, from the essays in your book uh, <laughs> I was quite interested in the choice of poets you're interested in um, and I wondered if some of the American ones are really quite loopy. You know what I mean, compared with, say, their British counterparts. I wonder if you thought there was a connection between, so to speak, mental illness and American poetry, the <laughs> that they live in, and that they kind of start off uh, in their work and arrive at completely different conclusions from. Them.
1: Yeah. thank you for that question it's very easy to answer <laughs> and what everybody in the audience doesn't know and that we do know is that we studied literature together at university so you sort of need to know that <laughs> okay. um, I hope I haven't let them too much into your secret <laughs> <laughs> um, no I th- obviously I think um, this is a ridiculous thing to say but I love American poetry um, and I think American poetry really did in our lifetime Open up a real bourgeois stuffiness in English poetry. Of course, there are wonderful contemporary English poets, but I don't think, I mean, loopiness would not be my term here, because I wouldn't, you know, I don't care whether people be looping or not, but in terms of making interesting words, phrases, sentences, verse, etc., I think American poetry, if it was a competition, is infinitely better in the last sort of post war than British poetry, or rather, I prefer it. But of course there are notable exceptions. But I think there's a kind of freedom that comes from partly from Whitman, but partly from other people too. That you can I mean, never have an English Franco horror. This just couldn't happen. And to me that's a loss. What
2: I mean is one or two of you you're really interested in seem quite ill. quite
1: ill. Yes, but I just I think we'd have to disagree here because this is not the language I would want to use. That's all. I mean, they may, they may be by your standards of I me, mean, but that wouldn't be mine.
3: Yeah. Um, I was just thinking about the, the idea of only reading things that you like and sort of starting something and reading a page or two and just going, nah, not mine, sort of thing. And I'm wondering if what we like remains quite fixed, or could it evolve? And are we missing out, in a sense, through the prejudices of our own taste, that there can be things that can really teach us something that we might not like for a few pages, that if we persevered, could actually offer us something? I mean, it must be right,
1: that, because I've, had, you know, I've experienced myself, and I expect other people have too, that either they persevered and something has become really good, or somebody's taught you, in a way that reveals how good it is yeah. so I definitely have had that experience but what I did find reading psychoanalysis simply because most of it wasn't written in a way that was that interesting to me was that it didn't work that I knew quite quickly when there was a voice in the writing yeah. when there wasn't I don't mean infallibly but just from my own point of view and I think I think really what's good is to be taught by people who really think the thing they're teaching is great
3: mm-hmm.
1: and that can either gets you going or you don't like it but it frees you to find out So, I think what I'd be on the side of is people only teaching things they feel passionately about. And then you can take away that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah, Gilles Deleuze said you have no business writing about something that you don't love. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely Uh, right. But um, just to follow up on on James' question, um, it's very difficult to know when putting something aside is a matter of the prejudices of your own taste which might be keeping you from something yeah. and when it's, it's it's a kind of authentic intuition that you yeah. you need to stick with you know I, I in a way suffer from the opposite problem to you a sort of nice jewish boy problem that putting a book aside is like not finishing your play yeah mm-hmm. yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, i know that for you. i just think there's also a kind of deferred action effect which is i've read things and i thought and i have set them aside and not finish my plate, and then I've gone back to them years later. Or somebody's spoken about them in a very interesting way, and that's re-tempted me. Mm. Um, but certainly, I've, for years and years and years, I don't know I've grown out of this, but for years, if I started a book, I had to finish it. Very, very recently, I was freed from that mm. by myself. And it was a great relief. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> go and do it, then. Uh, go and do <laughs> it. <laughs>
2: And just related to that, um, it might be a rather prosaic question, but if you're going to approach a writer to write about, would you um, go through all of their texts, or would you sort of take a psychoanalytic approach and remember what occurs to you and pre-associate about what you think about them? Or think about I can't them?
1: remember anything, really. What I do is if I'm writing, I mean, the, most of the essays in the book were commissioned by Muranath-Iris lectures or uh, certain books now of course I only accept the commission if either I'm already really interested in the writer or I'm curious when that is true I then um, if I can read everything they've written obviously you can't read everything Dickens has written for example but broadly speaking I immerse myself in it and then I see what comes out in the wash but certainly not it's not, psych- I mean, it's not psychotic in the sense of I don't feel like I'm um, putting one grid on top another one See what I mean? I'm not doing what feels like a translation it's like dream work as in, I, I think emotion experiences or states of absorption for me are very very generative so I rely on the fact that if I do that and as long as I'm reading something I really like something will come of it
0: I thought that was such an interesting on the hoof definition of a psychoanalytic approach though you know that you just kind of let whatever skins yeah. off the top of the surface of your mind carry you in your reading, I mean, it, it, it runs so counter to to yeah. what sadly most psychoanalytic readers think of, of a psychoanalytic approach.
1: Yes, and it's and it's unconscious reflowing attention. Yeah. Well, it
2: would be from Adam, probably. You just wait, just wait for the so yeah. that people can hear. I didn't really have the question, but then
4: I turned around and I saw psychoanalytic pedagogy on the wall, and I'm thinking. What
1: might that look like in practice? Um, what might
4: that look like in practice? Psych- pedagogy.
1: Well, good question. Do you want me to just give you straightforward answer psychos- Which I can do. So, how,
4: however you like it. Um,
1: well, I just think one of the interesting things about psychoanalysis is how you teach it. And if you teach it, what you then teach. Because in one sense... I mean there are probably as many answers questions that are people in the room, I imagine. But in one sense you learn it by undergoing it. But then it's not clear what the it is that you've learned. Of course you can read the books, but if you read the books along a certain versions of psychedelic lines, then you're not simply acquiring a body of information, although you're partly doing that. It's like the question can you teach people to listen, for example. Or can you teach people what to say when? Well, you can't. So I think everybody who thinks about this is really puzzled about how you train somebody to be a psychoanalyst. It's a bit like how you train somebody to be a poet. Well, people learn to become poets by reading poetry and writing it. I learned by having psychoanalysis, by doing it, by having good supervision, and by reading the books around it that interested me. But not by, for example, reading on topics. So, for example, I didn't read, you know, 15 papers on cancer I'm more interested in cancer But I might be interested in what somebody says. Some individual person might say. So it was like for me, it was it was very much to do with um, voices. Initially and primarily, my analysts, my patients, my supervisors, and the voices that I read. But how, you know, how can anybody tell you whether you whether you know it? Who's going to tell you that you're a psychoanalyst? Because who tells the psychoanalyst? I mean, you know, if you go to Freud and Freud says, and that's really good, uh, do you then think, oh, well, I can do it? Well, <laughs> of course not. And that's the great thing about it. It's, you, can't legit, you can't be legitimated. So everybody feels slightly frightened. They don't know whether they're really doing it.
2: <laughs> but of course, if you
1: go to a recognized institute you can be reassured, you can have symbolic legitimation, and you can feel, I must be redoing, because I'm at the places that tell me that I am. But such places could not exist. And that's one of the reasons it's a wonderful thing to do, because you can't learn it, and you do learn it. You learn something.
4: Is there a way that... um, I I work with children, I facilitate philosophy with children, and it's a question that really bothers me, and I'm thinking a lot about the intersection between philosophy and psychoanalysis, yeah. especially in a setting outside the clinic, yeah. so it's, it's, I'm wondering whether outside of the clinic and outside of the um, therapy, room, therapy room or outside analysis, whether that could be taken and be put yeah. into practice into places like schools.
1: Well, it will be if you or somebody else does it, yeah. if you see what I mean. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that psychoanalysis could, is, is unpredictably useful but if you've got an idea that you would use it in that way, you should try it out. Time
2: yeah.
4: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. just to say okay. it. Um, hi. Um, I'm really interested in your opinion um, in this issue. Um, how okay. can we draw a line if there is a line um? between freedom of speech and uh, polit- political correctness and in terms of writing or speaking in our daily life? Thanks,
1: thank you. That's a very, very huge question, as you know. And it's
4: really important. <laughs> no, of
1: course it is. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, I don't want to talk too long about this, but if you look at the history of civility, you find in uh, British history that uh, during the Reformation, based in the sixteenth century. There are all sorts of arguments about hate what we would call hate speech. In other words, how many diverse opinions can you bear? And is is a good country or a good society one in which everybody can contend with everybody, or should people shut up? And there are very strong views both sides of the line. So the people who believe in toleration believe that people should be free to voice their views, but also not shoot each other. In other words, there are limits to actual behaviour. Then there are another group, which in some ways are in some ways more interesting, who say, no, actually, people shouldn't speak their minds. They should allow people the freedom to speak or not speak their minds, but they shouldn't involve themselves in the kind of speech that actually is humiliating or diminishing another person. But the problem, of course, is legislation, because one person's humiliation is another person's stimulation. So you, can't, you don't know this beforehand. And in a way, psychoanalysis, among many, many other things, is a kind of laboratory where you explore, A, what free speech might be, and whether your life would be better if you had more of it. You know, because forensics says in a letter for it, why can't anybody say anything to anybody? You know, why does it have to be to an analyst? It's a very interesting question, and there are real answers to it, but they're not conclusive answers. And I think people, you know, we, we don't know other people's vulnerability until we know them. Yeah. And so our regard for them is always going to have to, I think, err on the side of politeness or courtesy. But by the same token, it's very, very limiting to have relationships in which you can't test the limits of language between two people.
4: This is, it's I a mean, bind. Yeah. yeah, it's a real bind.
0: Hi there. I remember reading once that you really liked uh, Brett Easton Ellis, and I've never heard you talk about him. And I really like him. What is it about his voice that you responded? Do you think?
1: I reviewed *Luna Park*, and so I I recommend you read that review briefly. Um, I find as very very funny. Primary virtue. I also think that he's very weirdly attuned to some very, very brutal things in the culture. And he has a very interesting way of um, uh, not glamorizing things and people by glamorizing them. It's a very, very interesting use of the kind of codes. So when there was a um, psychoanalyst I met at a dinner party once who said that she went around Waterstones in London hiding American Psycho. (laughs) Now that's obviously an unencouraging parable about (laughs) psychoanalysts. But it's an interesting emblematic effect of a book. Because from this person's point of view, American Psycho is about a man who goes around killing women. Well, it's also, in the best sense, a book about what it might be to write a book about men who go around killing women. And the, and the extent to which certain versions of capitalist exploitation are the murdering of certain things. So it's really a book about murder, and it's about, to, it's about killing the thing you can't bear needing, and so on. Obvious, it's a misogyny, but it's really a book about misogyny. So to read it as simply misogynistic is to miss three-quarters of the point and the joke. <laughs> But I, it's a, again, it's a question of sensibility. But I think the sentences are fabulous. And there's a way in which he catches something of that Californian, superficially cool, rather profound speech that people have seen him don't have.
2: Mm.
1: But I, I would read it for the um, coolness of the people. <laughs>
4: Can I say something of about, about American Psycho yeah, Just yeah. quickly. Yeah. Sorry, I I, I'm a fan of race and Alice, but I had a problem with that book in that I get your point about what it's saying about misogyny, but I was thinking of a recent um, interview with the guy who adapted The Handmaid's Tale and talking about how there was enough stuff in the media to say something about violence against women without having to invent too much, and that once you invent too much, it becomes a form of pornography. And I suppose I would feel that. American Psycho more than any of his other books tipped into that where some of the scenes it, you know he was already writing this gross baroque brilliant book and some of the things were unnecessary to do that and in that way it did become offensive I, I don't know if you have anything more to say about that No I
1: mean that. I think it must be it must be right if that was your experience if you're seen, right? I imagine there's a diversity response here I mean I thought, I can see that I thought it was much more about um it was about something about what it was like recreating pornographic scenarios, mm-hmm. if you see what I mean. I mean, clearly, which the anti-hero was doing all the time. And it was, it was exposing something about the murderousness of the ordinary pornographic scenario. But I can see, you could think well, we don't need this. I mean, there's plenty of it already. I suppose I felt
4: that it needed some, but not all
1: of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I can see that, but I don't, I really don't want to you this, but I just think that excess, of course, is what it's all about. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what is the effect of excess? But of course, you would think, yeah, enough's enough.
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, the companion writer for that book is actually Sard, which, of course, doesn't at all necessarily redeem it. But um, in the sense that it's a book also about the imagination and about what happens if you unleash the imagination and say, you sort of release it to work without limits on what it can do and where it can go um, and not to be confined by the limits of, of what is sayable or or. or
4: I suppose my point wasn't that
0: it wasn't a brilliant book, but
2: mm. that
0: I, yeah, found, it yeah. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. found it offensive yeah. and
1: yeah. brilliant. Yeah. 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 But that's an interesting combination, yeah. though, yeah. You yeah. Think? if you find yourself drawn against your taste. Yeah, yeah.
0: No, I, yeah. I admit that. <laughs> mm. Can I chime in with one more question? Um, one of the my favourite piece in the book is is on Roland Barthes another writer I have a real passion for Um, and you put a lot of focus on um, on on the sort of almost fanatical uh, paradoxically fanatical movement towards a kind of anti-dogmatism in the late I mean he has this wonderful um, late seminar Um, uh, which begins by talking about this category called The Neutral, and he says it's whatever baffles the paradigm. Uh, What baffles the paradigm, in other words, is what what simply won't be assimilated to any schema, to any um, dogmatic or systematic mode of thinking. And it it seems to me that that is the spirit um, in Barth, the writer, rather than Barth, the theorist, that, that, that kind of comes alive in your essay. And a number of people who enjoy reading Adam Phillips have, uh, you know, asked me uh, or talked to me about whether, you know, w- w- what kind of engagement you would have with Bart's contemporaries, with, you know, the likes of Derrida or Deleuze um, or Klosowski or, or Blanchot, um, and what it is that would keep you from Engaging more fully with, with writers like that. Well, like, again, it's a, for me, it's
1: a question of individual voices. I really like, I love Bart. I like, mm-hmm. love Deleuze. Derrida, um, I don't. Not. But this is, you know, this says nothing about him and nothing about me, if you do it I mm-hmm. mean. And it's very much to do with, I find the sentences very boring, even though when I see him quoted, it seems to me riveting. And then I read the books, and I just think, so <laughs> <is, I> can <laughs> um, So, I mean, I love that, that period of so-called French theory came just as I finished studying literature university Mm. and it was kind of a revelation to see these very, I mean I like the literature I grew up with but I also thought this was fabulous Mm. and really really interesting and unusual and so I thought that world that then opened out into psychoanalysis as well I thought was very very interesting, I don't feel because it's so not the tradition I was educated in, Mm. I don't really feel equipped, I don't feel free to write
4: about it
0: but it's very interesting that a lot of your readers see you as a kind of... You know, in spite of the uh, your affiliations, um, you know, there, there's a sense in which you are a companion writer to those theorists.
1: Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Now, I've certainly... I mean, Blanchot is a very good example, mm-hmm. I think, of somebody who... You can't imagine an English Blanchot. Yeah. And so these sensibilities are very, very different. Mm-hmm. But I think that I... For me, it feels like to, it feels like it's to do with education, really, and therefore to do with class. Mm. That I've been, ed, I was so educated and immersed in sort of Maoist training camp of English lit, what was then called English literature and American literature, that I didn't have the prejudicial, you know, I hate the French at all, the opposite, <laughs> but I did have a lower level of that, which was I wouldn't know how to write about this, mm. and a kind of scepticism about grand theory, you know, a sort of uh, an, a kind of ironizing of um, grand designs about literature but but they seem amazing an amazing group of people and of course we have nothing comparable
3: here
2: mm.
1: Mm. is that it? would anybody like to ask a last oh yes <laughs>
4: It's the level Free Association. Okay, I came to hear you. Um, and so, it's a question from that space. So, what do we do about apology between patient and... I feel like I'm, I'm wanting apologies, I'm writing apologies, and and so, how does one have somewhere in the gap between contrition, lea culpa, apology? And of course... I mean, I did one dirty trick. I actually apologised, and I knew the other person had to apologise to me. So I thought, if I prefer the apology, the apology would be coming. And the apology did come, but it was all about timing. So if it had come too late, it was not going to be a proper apology. And in this case, it was actually the apology that I... But I also knew that it would have not come if I hadn't apologised, which was a totally disingenuous apology. But, nevertheless, I was very satisfied by having won the kind of, that, that little, what would one call the little moment of civility between inner growing friendship. So those are the contours. There's friendship and there's apology. But there's also like a desire to stand up and yell yeah, like at my boss, my chair of the department, wanting apology at every time. So, um, so I was wondering what you thought
1: about Byron said in the letter, um, to apologize is to boast which I think is kind of interesting. Um, for me, and when you were talking, I thought, for me, apology is in the category of forgiveness. As in, I don't want people to apologize to me, I want them to behave well. So the apology is redundant, if you said, to me. So for me, I think, apology is not recognition, it's magical thinking. Um, as in, as though the apology is some kind of undoing. Whereas I just find it doesn't work for me, neither the doing of it or the being done to It just doesn't interest me. You know, I can see people do things they regret, but it seems to be, this is harsh, but it seems to be bad faith, really. I just, I think we should drop apologising and drop forgiving people as well.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, I, one of the most useful things a supervisor said to me is, is when I told her I'd, I'd apologise to a patient, and she said, uh, all you're saying when you apologise to somebody to, to a patient is, please don't be angry with me.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, no, of course. You
4: said that you cannot teach people to listen. Why do you say that?
1: I said it because at that moment I thought it. (laughs) And what I think I mean by that is that you can show people. It's very mysterious listening, as in, it's very mysterious what goes on when it is as though sounds and words enter one's body. And I think I think I learned how to listen through being taught how to read, actually. Which seems so odd in a way, but also listening to music, I think. Um, I I suppose it's for me, and this could be entirely me, teaching someone to listen would be be a bit like imagining how you'd teach someone to dream. I don't know what you'd do. That isn't to say you couldn't teach someone to listen, but I couldn't. That's how I imagine it. I don't know what you'd say. You could point to things and you could make suggestions. And you could, I suppose people could talk about their experiences of listening. But I don't know how you teach someone to listen. Thank
0: you. Okay. We, do, we would have time for one last question. If anybody wants to chime in. Oh, yeah. Okay. Back. Yes. Please. Um, i really
4: forgotten
0: the connection. There's, there's a mic on, on its way. Thank you.
4: I've forgotten the connection that made me think of this uh, or or the connection I made, but I'm interested, when you were talking about fashion, the idea of tattoos came up and I wondered whether you'd like to pre-associate on that. Could you say
1: one sentence more?
4: (laughs) (laughs) Writing on oneself. a joke? My, one of my sons has got a tattoo on his shoulder saying, Ceci no Pau no Paul. Which he had done in Nepal actually, but that's not the joke. <laughs> no, can you say one sentence? Because as <laughs> <laughs> I say, I well, put yeah, see, my hand no, up at yeah. the, the, the evening the, and I thought i would just help. Yeah, no,
1: that's fine. I, the trouble is that my sentence is so boring because I, maybe like you I'm confronted with this in relation to my own children who talk quite a lot well, the, my eldest child has tattoos obviously, and my youngest children want tattoos so we have quite a lot of conversations about what's a nice one is it a good idea, what is it you know? <laughs> and I, f- I just can't engage I, mean, I think some of them are beautiful and some of them aren't but I, I don't feel deeply about this I just think, you know, at 16 you do what you want <laughs> that's my sentence is at 16 you do what you want <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's,
3: there's a friend of mine who um, did an art installation in Whitstable where she got a small shop and got it all up like a shop and it was called My First Tattoo and it was tattoos for very young children and babies, with things like, I love Daddy. Uh, Mummy forever. And it was there for two weeks, and most people couldn't figure out what on earth it was about. They were horrified. And it was a very successful sort of um, addition to the art, being an
1: Thank well I think on that note. Yes. <laughs> I, I, thank I, you. I, thank I, you very much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you.